everyone. Welcome to the Cultivate Podcast for the Grove Church. I'm Charlie Lofton, the lead pastor here, and so glad that you've joined us. And we've been talking about systematic theology, and we've been talking about just different things that are really just kind of essential, crucial concepts that we all as Christians need to make sure that we understand. So we really can be make sure that we are unified in the right things and that we understand Obviously, there's always going to be some diversity, but there are obviously some very core principles that are really important for all of us to understand as believers. And we kind of ended one of our theology podcasts, we kind of ended, uh, cliffhanger may not be the right word. We ended with one of these things, I kind of started with a podcast in mind, and by the time the, the time had run out, I realized it was two. And we were talking about, uh, we were talking about substitutionary atonement. We were talking about Jesus, his death on the cross, what it means to be saved. And then we had a podcast where we were talking about and really answering the question, is Jesus the only way that someone can have a relationship with God? And is, is it possible to go to heaven, have a relationship with God, be in good standing with God? to be saved, however it is you want to phrase the question or the concept, is it possible to be, we'll just say it this way, can you be in good standing with God apart from Jesus? And I know that is a controversial thing to say, and if you did not check out that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to that one first, because this is essentially a follow-up to that. But in that one, we just kind of walk through a couple of different verses, one in John 14, another passage in 1 Timothy 2, that very explicitly says that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And then 1 Timothy 2, where Paul talks about that there is only one God and only one mediator between God and people, the man Christ Jesus. And so where we kind of ended with that podcast was the idea that you may not like that, you may not even agree with it, but I think it is important for us to understand that it is what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that in order for us to really have a relationship with God, one must go through Jesus. And if you want to understand kind of how that works, then you can go back and listen to the podcast on substitutionary atonement, on what it means that Jesus Christ died for me, and that I understand about my sin, how much that I need Jesus, and that Jesus' death on the cross pays the penalty that I owe because of my sin, which then allows me to be in good standing with Jesus. So if you've not listened to that one, I think that it's important because we will draw from both of those podcasts in order to put together um, some of these some of these questions that we're going to kind of ask. Because what we ended up doing in our podcast where we talked about um, is there more than one way to God or is it just one way, we talked about pluralism that some people believe that they're, you know, you talk about a mountain, how do, you get up, how do you get up to the top of the mountain? God's at the top of the mountain. Pluralism would say that there are multiple paths up the mountain. Uh, particularism say that, you know, you may think that there's more than one path, but there's really only one real way that you can get to the top. And then we talked about universalism versus exclusivism. Universalism says that everyone ultimately will get to the top. And exclusivism says that not everyone, even if it's just a handful of people, not everyone is going to get there. And what we, what we hear, what we hear from the Bible is a particularist, exclusivist, um, perspective. 
that there is in fact only one way to get to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. And not everyone is going to find that path. And Jesus says, says as much that the path is in fact narrow and it is difficult to find. As opposed to paths that lead to destruction, everybody seems to be able to find those. And so we left ourselves then, you know, we, we put those things out there and, and we ended it with me saying that there are actually a handful of questions that people tend to ask as they are trying to sort this, you know, sort through this and make sure, do I really believe this? Because there's just kind of some very natural objections that people have. And so there's three in particular that we're going to look at today. And if you have more, if you ever have more questions, I just encourage you to, to send, them, send them on. Send those to uh, info at thegrovechurch.org. And we would just love to hear anything that you have to say, any questions you have on any of these topics, actually. So we got three primary objections that, that people tend to have that or questions um, in order to help them really understand the implications of what we've been talking about. And the first one is usually phrased something like this, which is, what about a good Muslim? You've got someone, they were born a Muslim, they, they, were, they were good at being a Muslim, they are good character, they are good people. Will God reject the quote, the good Muslim? And I think there's a couple of things that I think are really important for us to understand as we think about just even the phrasing of that question. I think, I think it is just very much ingrained into our, into our brain that the world is full of good people and bad people. And good pe- God likes good people and God doesn't like bad people. Good people go to heaven, bad people don't go to heaven. And now we, we hassle a little bit about the definition of good and bad, how good is good and how bad is bad. You know, and some people's like, well, you know, 50%, you know, you know God's just going to take the top 50%, or it's like anybody who's done a little bit more good than they have bad, and that's what determines good. So now we're haggling over the definition of what makes someone good. And even if I were willing to just kind of accept that premise that essentially everybody can be put on some scale or, you know, some chart that goes from the absolute worst person to the absolute best person, even if we could agree on what makes someone good or what, what, what we could a universal idea of what is or isn't moral, and we could chart that. And even if we could, we could all agree on what the rules are to make somebody good or bad morally. We put that together and we can put everybody together on a chart. Even if we could do that, we have to have some clarity about where's the line between good and bad. And even if we could do that, I think it's really important for us to all understand that that is not the terms in which the Bible talks about people. The Bible does not talk about good and bad on a spectrum. When the Bible talks about, especially around the topic of salvation, it doesn't talk about a, a huge spectrum between good and bad. It actually uses far more often uses legal terms, righteous and unrighteous, in good standing or not in good standing, in a legal sense of the word. It's not a question of are you morally good and that you are do more good things than bad things. You're genuinely a good person. It really has to do what is your standing before the law? Are you a lawbreaker or not a lawbreaker? And that really is the the core around the word righteous. 
A righteous person is someone who is in good standing with the court, with the law. And so to um, make sure we understand the difference, I would ask this hypothetical question. Anytime I'm talking to somebody, I ask them that, and I'm asking it to you hypothetically, even though you cannot answer. Do you believe that there are, quote, good people in prison? I would hope that if you thought about it, that you immediately would answer the question, yes, that there are probably a lot of good people who who found themselves in a situation where they did something they shouldn't have, something it was it was an accident. But one thing that is true of everyone in prison is that they are all lawbreakers. And I'm not asking you, this is not a situation where we're objecting. Well, you know, some people are put in jail for the wrong reasons and they're falsely accused. Fine, fine. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about, at least from the perspective of the court, from the perspective of the court, all of those people broke the law. And it does not matter if they're good people or bad people. They broke the law and are facing the consequences of having broken the law. Conversely, I could ask, are there bad people who are not in prison? And he's like, of course there are. Of course there are. They just have not broken any laws or as of yet have not been caught and convicted of breaking any laws. So what your standing is before the judge and the quality of your moral character is not what's at debate with um, our standing with God. It is not good, bad. It is legally righteous or unrighteous. What is your standing? And the Bible makes it very clear. And again, you've heard some of this in the, um, in the podcast we did on substitutionary atonement, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are lawbreakers. All of us are unrighteous. You can talk about maybe some people have broken more laws than the other or the laws that they've broken are worse. Sure. But in standing before the judge, we've all broken the law. And so in that sense, and what God means and what the Bible talks about, none of us are good. None of us are good with God. None of us are in good standing with God apart from what Jesus did. So my answer to the question about can will a good Muslim go to heaven, I'll say it this way. In the same phraseology, will a good Christian go to heaven? I mean, someone who was born into a Christian home and does Christian things, acts like a Christian, does Christian, goes to Christian worship service, is in a relatively good person. Will that person go to heaven? It's like, that's not, that's not what the Bible talks about. Is that, be like, I, I would give the same answer. The, the question is not, do you follow a religion well? And are you a relatively good moral person? Have you been made in good standing with God? And the Bible makes it clear. That the only way that you can be in good standing with God is by Jesus Christ paying the penalty for you. So that is no knock against Muslims or any other religion. It is just stating that you, you can religiously be a Muslim just like you can religiously be a Christian. And it is not about how religious you are. And it is not about how good you are morally. It is about exclusively what Jesus Christ did in order to bring us to God, his death on the cross for us. So another, another question that gets thrown around, and I'm going to give you the, um, the, the term historically that has been used um, to describe this issue, even though it's going to sound a little weird and uh, maybe not offensive, but just weird. It's always been referred to historically as the noble savage problem. And the way that we describe it, and even though no one would really use the word savage anymore, I just want to use that phrase just in case you ever come across it in something that you're reading. 
the the noble savage problem is this. You imagine someone who lives on an island, maybe maybe by himself or with a group of people, and he doesn't know anything. He's never received any really re- real revelation about God, about who he is, about what he's done, doesn't know anything about Jesus. But this person, he looks at his beautiful island and the ocean around him and the sun, moon, the stars, the sky, everything. And he recognizes, he believes, man, there, there is a God out there and, and this God loves me and I want to worship him. And so he responds to what he knows, to what he understands. He doesn't know anything about Jesus. He just knows from what he can see around the world that, that the world is is good. There must be a good God behind it, and I want to worship that God. He's not worshiping the sun. He's not worshiping the ocean. He is worshiping the creator God, but just doesn't know any more than that. What about that person? And there's a passage in Romans 1 that talks about this. It talks about that there's plenty to be seen just in nature that can tell you about the character and the very nature of God. They've been given, and again, the way this is often described, they've been giving a small amount of light and they respond well to that light. And because they respond to it, that God would give them more is the idea. Well, the problem with using Romans 1 is that the way that Paul uses Romans 1 in his argument is that there is enough evidence about how awesome God is to establish that everyone is guilty of sin. And so basically what he's saying is that you can't, there is no person in the world that is that is so naive that there should not be evidence of the fact that they have sinned against a good God. Not only is there enough evidence for them to know that a good God exists, but there's enough evidence out there in the world to know that you have failed and fallen short of that God. And so this general revelation that's out there is not enough to save you, according to Paul, but it is in fact enough to convict you. Well, that doesn't seem very fair, and I get that, and I really haven't fully answered the question yet, but I just make sure we understand what Paul's saying. There's enough evidence out there in the world that should get you to a point to where you recognize there is a God and I fall short of who he is. That's what's Paul's argument in Romans chapter one. So again, we go back to our hypothetical theoretical person. Um, Let's say someone gets to that point. They recognize all of that's true. So not only do I know and acknowledge that there is a good creator God out there, I also recognize and acknowledge that I have fallen short and I am sinful. And you, and you see this in, very often in tribal religions, feeling like they need to make sacrifices in order to appease God. And so that there is, again, some recognition of the basic principles and truths of that somebody needs to understand in order to be saved, in order to have a relationship with God. And so they, you know, so I understand that God exists. I understand I fall short. I understand that some sacrifice or something needs to be made on my behalf to kind of to make things right between me and God. But he still doesn't know who Jesus is because no one's ever told him. So what about that guy? Well, there actually are a lot of stories out there that that talk about people like this. And there's a book that, that I've had for a while that tells some of these stories, and it's called Eternity in Their Hearts. And it's stories of tribes and groups of people who, without any missionary contact, without any contact with anybody from anybody affiliated with Christianity, 
has this sense in which that they know about God, they know about sin, and even to the point where some of them say, and we and we and God revealed to us that 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 He sent someone here to make it right, or maybe they say we know that that the Son of God has made this right. We just don't know who He is. Or you hear stories where they say, and then God revealed to us that the white men with the book will come and tell us the rest of the story. And so we have evidence of how God intervenes on behalf of these people to continue to give them more revelation. But all of the stories that we know ultimately end with God sending someone to these people. And so it would seem that God does, to people who respond good to the revelation that they have, that God does give more revelation to them. But it also seems that it, it, very, it ends with God sending someone to tell them about Jesus. And now at this point, now we're imagining a hypothetical person out there who they respond to the revelation they have. Maybe God gives them more revelation, but they die before the missionary comes or God, maybe God never sends one there. What is God going to do about that? And ultimately, here's the thing that we believe, that Jesus Christ, knowing who Jesus Christ is, God has said, that's the way. And I think that is important for us to know that, to believe that, to understand that. And because again, it, 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 makes, it makes it incredibly important, the mandate that we have to four missions, not just to the people around us, but to the world around us as well. But is there a case to be made for a hypothetical person out there somewhere that may or may not even exist? Do you, Charlie, personally believe that God will be more gracious with people maybe that don't know Jesus by name? And I, I think that we are all going to be surprised to some degree by who ultimately is in heaven and who is not. And my inclination is to say is that God is probably going to be a little more gracious than what, than what, than what I think that when in doubt, God is probably more gracious than I realize, but there's probably some of you out there that God is going to be less gracious than what you realize. I trust ultimately in the character of God to do right by everyone who is reaching out and seeking him. That's what I trust. What he has told us is that it is only through Jesus believing in him that you can have a relationship with him. But I trust ultimately in the character of a good and kind and gracious God to do right by everybody who is reaching out and seeking him. The last, the last question that people ask is what about, what about people in the old, what, what about people in the old Testament? You know, so what, what about somebody who, who, who died and lived even before Jesus ever was born, much less died on the cross? What about them? And then, it, and, and so what we read when we're in Genesis, we'll just use a couple examples here. We have with that, we have Abraham, you know, and Abraham is called by God to do certain things. And then this phrase is used where it says that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And there's our word again, righteousness in good standing. That ultimately his faith and his response to his faith, that God declared that to be righteousness. His response to God based on faith is what made him righteous. I think it is very important for us to understand 
that it was never intended, the following of the law and the following of the sacrifices, none of those things, those were never meant to be the path by which one had a relationship with God. Abraham understood that. David understood that. In his worst moments, he cried out to God and saying, and I would offer you a sacrifice as that, which if that's, if, that's, if that's what I thought would make it better. But I know that what you want is a sacrifice of my heart. You want my heart, not, not one more bull sacrificed in your name. That's not what you want. And so he understood a contrite, broken heart, a contrite and broken spirit, a, a, a need for forgiveness, a need for God to make them better. I think there's a, there's, there's a sense in which we have some of these people from the Old Testament that they seem that they, they understood that, that this was a way for them to honor God, their sacrifices and their laws. And the, but ultimately, the way Paul describes it in Galatians, that all of these things were meant to be guides, tutors, um, teachers, things that would ultimately point us to our need for Jesus. And the law was meant to establish like, hey, you think you're perfect? You think you, you can get there through perfect? Here's what perfect looks like. And we were always meant to fall short in trying to be good enough so that we would ultimately then realize I can't be good enough. I, I can only put my faith and trust in God. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we see things. We see symbols of, of ultimately what Jesus is going to do. The scapegoat, um, the, the story of Boaz, there are all these um, Jonah in the whale. I mean, there are all these stories that Jesus references where we have these people who understand or illustrate what it means that the sin or the penalty of one person is placed on somebody else, and then God saves them, rescues them, restores them, forgives them. It's all there for them to see. And so may, at that point, they don't know who Jesus is, but they understand that I don't gain favor with God by being good enough, but by recognizing how good he is, how I've fallen short, and ultimately I need forgiveness from him. And so I can't, I mean, I, I can't go through and, and, and give a very specific detailed answer to that question. I, I think, again, David summarized it really, really well in saying broken heart, broken spirit, need for forgiveness, trust and faith in God. You put the, the story of Abraham, you put these, these Psalms of David, you put these things together and you get the sense of that is what was, quote, saving people. And then ultimately what we recognize when you, again, you read Romans and what Paul says about Jesus and his death on the cross, that his death was for everyone. His death counted for them, even if that point they couldn't name him, which brings the question is like, well, if they couldn't name him, but his death counted for them, what about our noble savage guy? What about the good Muslim? And again, there's a story in Acts and we'll end with this. There's this Ethiopian eunuch who was by himself in a, car, in, in, in a chariot reading this scroll from Isaiah. And it's talking about, it's one of the things that's prophesying about Jesus. One, how did he get it? And of all the scrolls he could have, how did he get the one that was about Jesus? Clearly God's moving here and he's trying to figure it out. And God supernaturally transported Philip to this dude's location, saw him reading and said, Dude, what are you reading? And he's like, and he's like, I don't know, I don't even know. And he reads this thing from Isaiah and he says, is, is the author talking about himself? What is he talking about? And Philip says, he's actually talking about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. And he tells him about Jesus. 
He puts his faith in him. The eunuch sees a thing of water. Say, what's keeping me from getting baptized right now? Will you baptize me right now? Puts his faith in Jesus, gets baptized, boom. And then Philip is, again, supernaturally transported away. These are the stories that we have about God, that God is very actively looking for people who want to put his faith and trust in him. And ultimately, he is going to make sure that the people who want to respond to him get the opportunity to respond to him. I trust in that. But I think our big application from this needs to not be to get caught in the weeds of hypothetical people, but to understand that we need to be people like Philip, who are, who are spiritually, emotionally, and physically aware and available to be used by God to bring the hope and the life and the message of Jesus to people who need it. Again, I love having these conversations. If you have some more questions, I'd love to hear them. Uh, but ultimately, again, I think what God is wanting to communicate to us is that Jesus is absolutely essential, and it is our voice and our heart and our and and our mission that is going to help more and people more and more people know about who this Jesus is. So, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for being a part of this Cultivate podcast. And as always, we would love to see you on a Sunday morning. You can check us out at thegrovechurch.org/connect. Get all the details about our services. Or if you're not in Northwest Arkansas, you can just join us online when we're streaming on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook. You can find us on YouTube. Either way, we would love to connect with each and every one of you. Again, thanks for joining us and hope you have a great week.